From two weeks ago, we left Jonathan on the uh, side of Micmash, and, and he's still there. He, uh, he was kind enough to hang out a little longer, um, and so we're going we're gonna to get with it today. So 1 Samuel chapter 14, uh, those verses are, most of them are on the, on the outline. So 1 Samuel 14, verse 1, one day Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come on. Let's go over to where the Philistines have their outpost. But Jonathan did not tell his father what he was doing. And that question might be submitted, why didn't he tell his father? It's why we never tell our fathers uh, something if we know they're going to say no. Right? Just keep that close by. Father, we thank you today. that you're here, that you love us. Thank you that you have um, allowed us to have a relationship with you. You didn't stick your nose up in the air and say, man, you've messed up. There's no hope for you. Uh, You get to be eternally separated from me. No, you did something about it, Lord by sending your son Jesus to pay for our sin debt by dying on the cross. And we thank you for taking our place so that we can respond and say, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven of my sins so that I can be reconciled in that relationship with you, the creator of my life, the God who wants me to be with him forever. That's love. And so thank you that you live in us and through us and empower us to say no to sin and ungodliness. And today, do a cool thing in each one of our lives, Lord, as we have the opportunity to to read your word and apply it to our lives. We just don't want to read it. We don't want to take this time and not leave this building the same. It is so cool when you change us to be more like you. But being a loving God, you give us the freedom to either say yes to you or say no. So help us, Lord, to say yes. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. While I was praying there, I just had a flashback of probably 35, 40 years ago. Isn't that crazy? Uh, my pastor was uh, a missionary to Liberia for 14 years, and and uh, he introduced a song when he became our pastor. I'll say yes, yes, yes. I'll say yes, yes, yes. I'll say yes, Lord. I'll say yes, Lord. I'll say yes, yes, yes. Now that's a tough one to learn. A lot of words. (laughs) 
But it's tough, it's tough, isn't it? Man, there's a battle raging to say yes to the Lord. So, Lord, help us to say yes to you today. Yeah. All right. Joshua Chamberlain. Man, we're going back into history. He, uh, he went to uh, Bible school for three years. He was thinking about being a pastor, and then he, he, he kind of changed direction and thought, no, I'm going to be an educator. He became a professor uh, at, uh, at a college in the state of Maine. Um, and when the Civil War got started in the 1861, he volunteered as a 34-year-old man to make a difference for his country. And um, he climbed the ranks to become a colonel for the 20th Maine Volunteer Infantry Regiment of the Union Army. On July 2nd, 1863, for those historians uh, in the room, that's the Battle of Gettysburg. That was a tipping point uh, for the Civil War, of course. Um, Chamberlain and his 300 soldier regiment were all that stood between Confederates and certain defeat at the battlefield in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It was 2.30 in the afternoon. It was very hot. The 15th and 47th Alabama Infantry Regiments of the Confederate Army charged up the hill of Little Round Top. And Chamberlain and his men held their ground. Then there was a second, a third, a fourth, and a fifth charge up the hill. And by that last charge, the 300 men that Chamberlain had with him was down to 80. It was uh, some brutal fighting. In fact, Chamberlain on the fifth charge was shot and the bullet hit him in the belt buckle, knocked him to the ground. Fortunately, the belt buckle stopped the bullet from entering his body. But the force put him on the ground and, of course, he jumped back up again, ready to fight another day. Sergeant Tozier from the Union Army came and told Chamberlain that there's no reinforcements coming. In fact, in fact, uh, our men only have one bullet left to shoot. So Chamberlain realized he had an important decision to make. The lookout, which was a young boy up in the trees, uh, informed the colonel that the Confederates were forming rank again to make a sixth charge. Now, rational thinking would say, okay, um, you're down to 80 guys. You only have one bullet left in your chamber, each of these 80 men. Um, there's, there's thousands of Confederate soldiers that are going to be coming up that hill. Uh, the easy, the normal thing to do is raise the white flag and call at the end of the day and surrender, right? But Chamberlain wasn't wired that way. He, um, he made a defining decision that turned, really, the war because if the Confederates took the high ground at Little Round Top at Gettysburg, they could have won that battle, gone to Washington, D.C., just miles down the road and put an end to the Civil War. 
But instead, Chamberlain got on top of the stone wall that was their defense, took his sword, and gave the command, charge. And his men fixed their bayonets, and they ran down that hill after the Confederate army. They caught the Confederates off guard. I mean, think about it. (laughs) Who would do such a foolish thing, right? Um, And what ranks as one of the most improbable victories in American history, 80 Union soldiers captured 4,000 Confederates in a matter of five minutes. And what looked like an impossible mission, it literally saved the Union. Joshua Chamberlain was later awarded the Medal of Honor by President Grover Cleveland for holding his position on Little Round Top against repeated assaults and carrying the advanced position on Great Round Top during the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, historians you know, will, will say, man, if, if Chamberlain did not make that decision, um, the Confederates could have had the high ground and things could have looked differently for American history. Later in life, Chamberlain was asked about that particular battle. You know, what, what caused you, what made you make that particular decision on, uh, at Gettysburg? And this is what he said. I had deep within me the inability to do nothing. I knew I may die, but I also knew that I would not die with a bullet in my back. Joshua Chamberlain, uh, that's quite a statement, and may that statement be infused into the body of Christ at this point in time in our history as being followers of Jesus Christ, the inability to do nothing. Because I'll tell you something, friends. Uh, In our culture today, the easy thing is the ability to do nothing. There's too many followers of Christ that are doing nothing. And that goes with Colossians 2.6 that Paul says, continue in that relationship with Christ after you have put your faith in him. Continue. Continue. May you have the inability to do nothing in that walk with Christ. We can transfer the battle of Gettysburg to today and we can go back into the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 14 as well when uh, the nation of Israel was, was once again rejecting God, they got caught up in all the idol worship of the countries around them. They saw that these other countries that surrounded them had kings, and because they had kings, I want a king. And even though they weren't living for God, they kept saying, we want a king. We want a king. We want a... God says, I'm, a, I'm your king. We don't want you, God, as king. We want a human king. We want to be just like everybody else. Man, is that popular today? That same kind of thinking. I want to be like everybody else, right? I want to be like everybody else. Everybody else is doing this, so so I'm going to do this too, God. I don't care. You know, like Wednesday night uh, in our study, Louis Giglio uh, had photographs of Thomas Jefferson's Bible. And what Thomas Jefferson did with his Bible is he got a, uh, an X-Acto knife and he cut out uh, 
portions of his Bible that he agreed with, and he created his own Bible. So the Bible that had portions cut out, not cut out, that Bible was put away. And, and Thomas Jefferson uh, picked and chose what he thought was relevant for his own personal Bible. You know, there's too many people today, again, we're, we're cutting out what we don't agree with God, you know? I'm going to pick and choose, God, how I want to live my life. And I'm not comfortable with what you say and the demands you place on me for following you. It's, it's popular. So let me ask you, are you doing that to your Bible? You know, Are you cutting out par- portions and parts of, of the Bible that you agree with? And you, you kind of create your own personal Bible, you know. Uh, can I say that's dangerous ground? That's, that's very dangerous. So Israel, you know, they want to be like everybody else. So God says, okay, all right, you want a king? You want a, you want a human king? Okay, I'll give you a king. And he gave them Saul. And Saul, his physical stature was he was the tallest dude around. And initially, Saul did not want to be king. He didn't think he was good enough, but, you know, it, God had worked in him, and he finally relented and said, okay. And so Saul started out as a humble man, and he relied on God, but he quickly changed once that power came to him. And he started, he started cutting out portions of the Bible of, with what he agreed with and what he didn't agree with. And when, when Samuel, the, the man of God who would talk to him, and this is what you need to do, Saul, as king, he ignored him. He ignored the voice of God. And Saul said, I, I, I can do this better. And here's the dangerous thing. As, as Saul was king, he started looking at God from a distance. You know? And I can tell you, hands down, you cannot grow in your walk with Christ when you're looking at God from a distance. We look at God from a distance when we stay out of his word. We, we, you know, we take our Bibles and we put them away for a while. And we look at God from a distance. And what, what we're, we're looking at is what our culture says about religion and and what it says about God. Wednesday night I read an article recently where Islam and other world religions came together and they signed a document for a one world religion. And they had all these various religions that signed on to the fact that our goal is that we live in a world of peace and that we can get along. And I want to tell you something, pluralism, that's what you call that, Jesus was not into pluralism. And when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, nobody can get to my Father except through me, he wasn't talking about pluralism. He was saying he was the only way. And I'll tell you what, the religious community didn't like that very much. You know? And it stands today. When you say that Jesus is the only way, people become very uncomfortable with that. 
It's interesting, when I take my car to the gas station, I can't put oil in my gas tank because I don't think it's right. You know, It's not fair that we can only put unleaded gasoline in my tank. That's not right. You know, I think I should put some, hey, I'll put milk in my gas tank. How's that going to work for you? So when we look at when we look at our secular life, when there's directions or specifics that this is the only way you're supposed to operate this vehicle or or tool, we're okay with it. But when we say that there's only one way to get to heaven through Jesus Christ alone, people have meltdowns. And they, Israel was melting down, man. And, and so in the scheme of things, um, Saul drifted away from God, and he began to live a life of fear and paranoia. His own son, Jonathan, could have looked at his father and say, and this is what goes on in the church today, by the way, in America, where fathers check out spiritually, you see their kids checking out spiritually. Yeah, my dad didn't go to church. My dad went whenever he wanted to. You know, if something else was going on, we went there, blah, blah, blah. That's becoming too common today. And I have to take my hat off to Jonathan because he could have simply signed off and said, all my peers, everybody I went to school with, they, they're serving these idols and fake gods. My dad in, himself is drifting spiritually. He's living in fear. I, I think that's a good way to go. Jonathan, there was something on the inside of him that pushed against that kind of thinking. Why? Because his father was looking at God from a distance. Jonathan maintained his relationship with God where he knew God. He didn't know about God. He knew God. And that's the difference maker. Which leads us to number one, which you already have filled out, so it's not fun for you. It's uh, time to go. And please don't leave. One day, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come on, let's go over to where the Philistines have their outposts. But Jonathan did not tell his father what he was doing. And um, Jonathan was really a good son. He, he was with his dad on the battlefield. Thousands of Israelis had, had gone AWOL. They called it quits because Phil, the Philistines had the most powerful army in the world of that day. And for 200 years, they had been intimidating the Israelis. And they, they confiscated all of their armaments. All their weapons were taken by the Philistines. And the only thing they could have were farming tools. The men that could build weapons for the Israelis, they were shut down. Their businesses were shut down to blacksmiths. So when an Israeli wanted to have his farming implements repaired, they would have to go to a Philistine blacksmith. And so for Israel to fight on the battlefield, they had to use farm equipment, you know, 
or slingshots. Because all the swords and spears were taken outside of the fact Jonathan had one and Saul had one. And most likely their armor bearers did. So possibly up to four swords and spears for a nation. That's pretty good. Right? Where the Philistines have iron chariots. And then on and on and on. So, so Jonathan is, is with his dad and the 600 men. That's all that's left for this army. Everybody else has gone home or in hiding or went over to the Philistine army because they thought the odds were better to, to fight for the Philistines. Jonathan realized that doing nothing wasn't honoring to the Lord. Because the Philistines had intimidated these men. And, and when you live in fear, how about it? When you live in fear, man, it messes with you, right? I mean, when I was a little dude, and you've heard this story, uh, I had nightmares every night. I was, I was, when I went to bed, I lived in fear because every night a monster came to my, my house. Nobody else's house in the neighborhood. So, so I had a monster always coming up the back door into, up, the, up to the kitchen, and my room was next to the kitchen. He'd always be standing in there. That's what an imagination does to you. And then, it was worse than that, I always had snakes under my bed. See? So I was living in fear as a little dude, man. Traumatized me for life. So, would I go to bed excited, or would I go to bed feel of, full of anxiety? Anxiety. Until I got old enough and realized the pounding was not a monster coming down the street. It was a, it was a steel factory four blocks away from my house. Thinking, what an idiot. My imagination of a monster. It's, there was no monster. Fear will, will paralyze you. And I'm telling you, in our culture today, a lot of people are living in fear. You know? They are. They're so, things are unraveling so quickly in our culture today, it's hard to keep your, your balance, isn't it? The last couple of weeks, there's been uh, news articles about um, very prestigious pastors in our country that, that have had to step down. And I can tell you how sad, and you know how sad that is. And then last week you have, you have billionaires, successful business people who, uh, it, it, through investigation, it's found out that they're, they're part of a prostitution ring. 77-year-old men. And, and, and you're thinking, it's like, are you kidding me? You know? Men that have, have not been able to control their sexual passion. Even a 77-year-old man. Men, plural. We hit this last Sunday a little bit. The point is, friends, you have opportunities to get the shovel out while it's still water before it turns to ice. How do you think these men, their, their families, their sons, their daughters, how do you think they look at them now? Hmm? With seeing their dad's picture on the front of the news. Do you think they esteem them? Do you think they admire them? Do you think when I get older, I want to be just like him? 
I don't think so. That's why dealing with, with issues in your life and my life, it's so critical. And we see Saul becomes a casualty along with the nation of Israel. But something on the inside of, uh, of Jonathan, there was a fire burning man about God. God, woo, do something in my life. And I think Jonathan had his iPod with him, and he had earbuds. He had to have earbuds because when he listened to the music, he didn't want the Philistines to hear it, to know where they were. And he was listening to Toby Mack. Check it out. So Jonathan got a, he heard that, man. It ain't over yet. Israel looks like they're tanking. It's over. They're just waiting for the white flag to go up. And, and, and Jonathan said, it ain't over yet. I got to move, man. I got to move. I got to get off this mickmash deal where all these men are living in depression and discouragement and hopelessness. You know, you've been this way for so long, it's hopeless, man. No, 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 no. Move. It's time to move. Take that step to God. And that's exactly what happened. Henry Blackaby wrote, you can't go with God and stay where you are. You hear that? You can't go with God and stay where you are. Everything in this world is saying stay where you are because it's safe. It's safe, man. This is, the, this is what you know. It's safe here. No, no, you can't go with God. Um, it's, it's time to move, friends. I'm telling you, it's time, it's, time, it's time to go. Like Jonathan said, it's time to get out of this environment. Everybody else is doing this, feeling sorry for themselves, living in fear. It's time to move. Number two, some are stuck in the bleachers. Look at verse 2. Meanwhile, Saul and his 600 men were camped on the outskirts of Gibeah around the pomegranate tree at Migron. Among Saul's men was Ahijah, the priest who was wearing the ephod, the priestly vest. Ahijah was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, 
the priest of the Lord who had served at Shiloh. No one realized that Jonathan had left the camp. Now, it's interesting. So, so in verse 1, it says uh, Jonathan took off, but he didn't tell his dad. And, and, and in the tail end of verse 3, no one realized that Jonathan had left the Israelite camp. Because they'd all talk him out of it. If Jonathan set out a memo and said, hey, dudes, um, I'm going to do this, they, they'd talk him out of it. You can't do that. You know, you can't do that. Notice Saul, he's sitting under a pomegranate tree. In other words, we could say he's in the bleachers, spiritually. He's in the bleachers. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you weren't created to sit in the bleachers. If you're a follower of Christ, you were not created to sit under a pomegranate tree when stuff is happening all around you. That doesn't bring honor to God, and it doesn't fuel the fire that God has for you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a dangerous place to be. I don't know if you realize this, but church is not a spectator sport, right? And, and if, if you're the hands and feet of Jesus, you can't be, you can't be his church uh, when you're sitting in the bleachers. You know, your hands, you're sitting on your hands, and your feet aren't going anywhere. You are the church. You're not at church right now. You are the church. When you leave here, when you go to work this week, when you go to school this week, you're bringing the church with you. You are the church. You're the body of Christ. The people that you go to school with, the people that you work with, that's your congregation. What you do at work, that's your sermon. They're watching and listening to you, man. Yeah. Church was not meant to be a spectator sport. And Saul, we see, he's decaying. He's he's decaying. He's rotting. And Kenny Luck, who spoke at No Regrets a couple years ago, wrote this, the most frustrating aspect of an existence is when we are not progressing. Yeah, that's why you're so bored, man. God is at a distance. You're keeping arm's length away from him. Instead of becoming who we need to be, we're remaining who we are. Most Christians are unexamined, unknown, unconfessed and unable to risk transparency for the sake of growth. Yeah. We, we go into hiding, you know. We put on the facade. We put the mask on. Man, are you stuck in the bleachers this morning? Can, can you identify your pomegranate tree? You know, what is it? What, what's keeping you from stepping out? You've become so comfortable under that pomegranate tree. What, put a name on it that's holding you back. What's holding you back from taking that next step with God? Progressing in your, your walk with Christ. What is it? It's time to get out of the bleachers. William Marston wrote, On the plains of hesitation bleached the bones of countless millions who, on the threshold of victory, sat down to wait and in waiting, died. Yeah. 
We're good at making excuses. Man, I like the bleachers. You know, the bleachers are nice. You ever sit in the bleachers very long? Dude, it's not good, especially when it's cold. You know, I bought one of those comfy chairs. It's got a back on it. It doesn't have arms, but it's got a back and a seat. Keep me off the metal, man. That's, that's the best I could do. But I'm telling you, sitting in the bleachers wasn't meant for long term. There's too many people camping out in the bleachers under the pomegranate tree. There's too many. Oh, it's dangerous ground. Listen, listen. Um, Michael Brown, a theologian, Bible teacher, um, wrote an article last week entitled, How Can We Be So Numb? And he's challenging the church in America. When you look at our culture in America, how it's crumbling, you know? It's crumbling. And he quotes Keith Green, and all of you old-timers out there, you know Keith Green was a Christian songwriter back in the day, died in a plane crash, kind of wrote with a prophetic flair. He says, do you see, do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. Michael Brown's talking about the church in America, how apathetic we've become. In the midst of an urgent moral and spiritual crisis, many of us are complacent and unconcerned. We would rather be entertained than exhorted, coddled than confronted. Sports is more important to us than souls and possessions, more important than purity. How many of us really carry the heart of God? If the Lord doesn't return for some years, I believe future generations of Christians will not be so shocked when they look at the moral collapse of our society. Instead, of, instead as they survey books we were reading and the sermons we were hearing and the movies we were watching, they will ask, what were you thinking? How could these multiplied tens of millions of Christians be so complacent while America unraveled? We live in a day in which, in the figure of speech, America is burning. May God awaken his people. May he set our hearts ablaze. Right? We don't need souls in our culture today that sit under the pomegranate tree. God's looking for men and women who model his character. We don't need another Saul in our culture. The churches are full of them. Man. We need to know God. We need to have a relationship with Him, not know about Him. Three. Who am I listening to? Who's, who are you giving permission to speak into your life? Verse 4, to reach the Philistine outpost, Jonathan had to go down between two rocky cliffs. They were called Bozes and Sina. The cliff on the north was in front of Michmash, and the one on the south was in front of Geba. 
Listen to what he says. Let's go across to the outpost of those pagans, Jonathan said to his armor bearer. Perhaps, perhaps the Lord will help us. See, he didn't have a word from God. You know, he didn't get a memo from God. And God said, Jonathan, get up. Go into the Philistine outpost because I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bring you victory. Jonathan didn't have that. All Jonathan knew was he knew God. And he knew God was with him. And even if he died on that battlefield, he was going to die for the glory of God. Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. Do what you think is best, the armor bearer replied. I'm with you completely, whatever you decide. You see, Saul's in the bleachers, and Jonathan's got his police scanner going, you know? Jonathan says, man, I, I'm, I, I got to step out here and do something for God. I, I am not going to be apathetic like everybody else I'm hanging with. And check out what his, his armor bearer said. Do what you think is best. I'm with you completely, whatever you decide. What if his armor bearer said, Jonathan, are you kidding me? You know, I'm going to go out there with you. We're going to get slaughtered. He says, I'm with you completely. He's speaking courage into Jonathan, who are we listening to? Who's telling us that we can't live for God in this culture? Who are you allowing to speak into your life? You know, I I told this before too, man. Karen Carpenter back in the day, way back in the day, had an awesome voice, and, and man, she could tell some stories through her music. But when you listen to the theme, it was very depressing. Like, like my heart is broken again. And, and, I had to stop listening to her music because it was taking me down a trail that I didn't need to go. So I had to stop listening to her. And you'd say, Karen Carpenter, man, she was the all-American, blah, 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 blah. Right. But if you listen to the lyrics, and I'm telling you, the lyrics, that's why, that's why Jonathan got so pumped about Toby Mac. Move! Move, man. Get out of that quicksand, right? Music is powerful. And we have to be very careful what we're allowing ourselves to listen to. And who is speaking into our lives? And who are we listening to? That's the question. And I, I love it. I love it. Jonathan moved with his armor bearer, and, he listened, and his armor bearer listened to him, and he, he said, yeah, man, let's do it. In 2 Chronicles 16, 9, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Do you realize God, 
is looking over this little earth with seven and a half billion people right now. He's looking at them all at the same time. And and he wants to strengthen those individuals whose hearts are fully committed to him. And that's what was going on in Jonathan, man. He, when when God, God said to Jesus, to the, to the Holy Spirit, hey, look at what's going on in Jonathan right now. Isn't that awesome? Let, let's, just, let, let's just really strengthen his core right now as he gets out there with the Philistines. Sharon Janice, uh, we're going to kind of shift from the battlefield to a to a, a marriage environment. She was having her devotions. Been married for several years, and she was just talking about how her marriage had kind of cooled down, just because life, you know, gets busy and the kids keep you busy, and and so she read Revelation two, four, and five, and you read that and you think, what does that have to do with marriage? Well, she found out. Jesus is speaking to the churches. He says, I've got this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And, and the Lord convicted Sharon like, hey, hey, um, you're in a rut. <laughs> you, you need to do what you did at first when you were first married. And, and so she said, one day I took John's words to Revelation to heart. I decided to remember. I turned to romancing my husband for 14 days straight. One day I simply put a sticky note on the bathroom mirror that said, I love you. Another day I placed a box of red-hot candy on his car seat with a note that said, you're a hottie. One warm morning I warmed up his towel in the dryer and had it ready when he got out of the shower. And you know what happened? At the end of the 14 days, Steve had a skip in his step and a smile on his face. You see that? Sharon realized she could be an armor bearer. She could be an encouragement to her husband. And it changed the way he walked and his countenance. And what happened in me, she asked. I can hardly describe the love that welled up in me as I loved my man well. Hear this? I changed, she says. I changed. And that's my challenge to you and to me today. When we see the fire needs stoking, remember and return. In other words, get on with it, right? Get on with it. That can be in your marriage. That can be in your relationship with the Lord. Uh, You need the fire to stoke the fire. Let's get on with it. Keep moving. So, So, Jay Strack in his book, Above and Beyond, wrote, Who you associate with is one of the few decisions over which you have 100% control. Pray for godly, motivated friendships and take time to develop them. And as a Christian, be kind to everyone in your path, but in relationships, share like values and passions. Beware of those who drive in the excuse expressway with no intention of using the exit ramp. See, be careful. Be careful. Who are you listening to? Number four, waiting on the Lord, verse eight. All right, then Jonathan told him, we will cross over and let them see us. If they say to us, stay where you are or we'll kill you, then we will stop and not go up to them. 
But if they say, come on up and fight, then we will go up. That will be the Lord's sign that he will help us defeat them, waiting on God. So, so Jonathan, they, they positioned themselves in a very vulnerable spot. They came off the high ground, went into the valley with a target on their chest and their back to expose themselves to the enemy army and say, here we are! They got excited about that. And Jonathan saying, how they respond after they see us will determine if we fight them or we stay where we're at. We're going we're to wait on God. We're, we're, we're trusting God here. We don't know how they're going to respond. And so, you know, there's proactive waiting and passive waiting, right? Proactive waiting uh, can be challenging. Debbie and I do that a lot, proactive waiting in Walmart. This is proactive waiting. She has a cart and I have a cart. She has stuff and I have stuff in the carts. She goes in one lane, I go in the other lane. And whoever's lane's moving faster will jump over into that lane. That's, that's, that's proactive waiting, right? Proactive waiting. <laughs> and you've got passive waiting. Passive waiting is Saul sitting under the pomegranate tree. That's passive waiting. That's, that's a picture, that's a postcard of so many people who live their lives, you know? Decade after decade, and when they retire and post-retire, they're still sitting under the pomegranate tree. Nothing's ever changed on the inside. How sad. How sad. And, and waiting, waiting on the Lord so we get direction from him. There was a telemarketer that called the home one day, and a young boy whispered on the telephone, Hello! And uh, the telemarketer asked, Hello, what's your name? And, and uh, the boy still whispered, Alex. How old are you, Alex? I'm four. Good. Is your mother home? Yes, but she's busy. Okay. Is your dad home? Yeah, he's busy too. Hmm. I see. Who else is there, Alex? The police. The police. May I can speak to one of the police officers. They're busy too. Okay, any other grown-ups in your house, Alex? The firemen. Can I speak with a fireman, please? They're all busy. Hmm. Alex. All those people in your house and I can't talk with anybody? What are they doing? They're looking for me. (laughs) Alex is waiting to be found. Right? That's a lot of us live our lives in hiding. Right, But as we wait on the Lord, he will, and get to know him, he will empower us to do what's right. A.W. Tozer put it this way, the voice of God is a friendly voice. That's what Jonathan knew. 
Jonathan knew God's voice was a friendly voice. No one need fear to listen to it unless they have already made up their mind to resist it. That's where Saul comes in. Saul already made up his mind to resist the voice of God. See See the difference? Oh, it's so awesome to have God's voice speaking into your life, you know. As you read his word, he speaks. He speaks through circumstances. He speaks through godly people around you. He's speaking. It's a friendly voice because he loves you so. But to hear his voice and to respond in obedience, there's nothing like it. And number five, victory comes from the Lord. Verse 11. When the Philistines saw them coming, they shouted, Look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. Why? Because they were hiding. They were AWOL. They were nowhere to be seen. Then the men from the outpost shouted to Jonathan, Come on up and we'll teach you a lesson. Come, come on, climb, the, come, climb right behind me. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, for the Lord will help us defeat them. Boy, you talk about faith. No fear in that comment. So they climbed up using both hands and feet. Anybody scale a cliff lately? We have that image on the, on the screen. Look at it. Whoa! That's, that's Jonathan and his armor bearer climbing up the cliff. Now be this, man. So, so he's got his sword on his back. Imagine climbing up the cliff, the enemy's up on top, you're exposing yourself. Anybody come a, climb a cliff lately? Uh, it's exhausting. And I'm speaking by faith because I never climbed a cliff. <laughs> but just looking at that picture wipes me out. Huh? It, it wipes me out. Like, oh, I'm exhausted looking at that guy. Woo! That scares me. We better move on. So imagine they're making their way up to the top. Once they get to the top, they're going to start welding their sword, which takes a lot of strength as well. And so they climbed up using both hands and feet, and the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed those who came behind them. They killed some 20 men in all, and their bodies were scattered over about half an acre. And suddenly, this is cool, panic broke out in the Philistine army, both in the camp and in the field, including even in the outposts and raiding parties. And just then, an earthquake struck. Well, who do you think sent the earthquake? God's just kind of spicing up the environment, isn't he? He put fear into the Philistine army, and then he says, we're going to shake up the ground a little bit here. This will really get them going. And everybody was terrified. Saul's lookouts in Gibeah of of Benjamin saw a strange sight. The vast army of the Philistines began to melt away in every direction. It was a a strange sight because this is the most powerful army in the world. And they're running away from two dudes, man, that are carrying the banner of the kingdom of heaven being empowered by that great kingdom on that battlefield. Victory comes from the Lord. Oh, man. 
You might have a problem this morning, and you're thinking, you know what, I'm just going to have to live with this problem. I've lived with it so many years. I've been under the pomegranate tree for so long. Satan comes along and says, man, your sin is too great. It's hopeless, right? He, he just kind of dumps. That's why we have to be careful who we're listening to. Now, it's hopeless, man. You, you're going to be stuck under this pomegranate tree for the rest of your life. You know, God can never forgive you. Hmm. Not true. Not true. Victory comes from the Lord. I like, I like this motto from the French Foreign Legion from years ago. It says, if I falter, push me on. If I stumble, pick me up. If I retreat, shoot me. Ooh. Ooh. You know what? In the body of Christ, if you're retreating, let's get our gospel gun out and shoot you. Get you back on track again. We don't kill you. We just shoot you. You know, it's got those foam bullets. We'll get you back on track again. Woo! And that relationship with the Lord. What if Jonathan had done nothing? You know, nothing would have happened. Nothing would have happened. No glory to God. No honoring to the kingdom of God. No, no power demonstrated from God. Man, God's waiting for that to happen. I like Psalm 32, 7. You surround me with songs of victory. You surround me with songs of victory. When, when you talk to men that are experiencing victory in their thought life, you know, in their purity, in their commitments, it's so cool. Because you look into their eyes and there's life man. It's like their eyes are jumping, doing calisthenics, jumping jacks. Man, I'm so happy. My eyes are so happy because I've experienced victory. That's what God wants. He wants that for all of us. And uh, when the Green Bay Packers, I know this, this is going back a little Always, when they won the Super Bowl 45, and even when Mike McCarthy was their coach, he was back then. You know what he did the night before of the Super Bowl? He had every player's uh, sign for Super Bowl rings. Size me up, man. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna. I'm gonna get that ring. Do you realize that as a follower of Christ, you've already been sized, not just a ring size, but a hat size too? Do you realize that? God's already measured your hat. You know why? Because you're going to get a crown when you get to heaven. Why? Because victory has been given to you. Romans 8.37, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Isn't that great news? Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. That's what God wants to give to you and to me to experience that victory. Man, Jonathan, just imagine if he got stuck under the pomegranate tree with his dad. What a boring life, you know? What a boring life. Jonathan sends out postcards, you know, I wish you were here. Life is such a drag. Under this pomegranate tree. Too many Christians are living like that. Too many. 
Get out there at the outpost, man, of the Philistines. Let's see God work in and through you. So his fame will spread and the victory will be experienced by you. Father, thank you today for the good work, Lord. The good work that you want to do in each one of our lives. We were born on purpose because you have a plan for our lives. It's not to be sitting under pomegranate trees. It's, it's, it's made, it's designed to get out to the outpost of the Philistines. To let the fame of Jesus Christ be spread. To see the power of God demonstrated. And this morning, Lord, if we have been stuck under this pomegranate tree for uh, an addiction, for a habit, for a thought that's taken root in our minds, will you forgive us, Lord, this morning? And you're here today and put a name on that pomegranate tree. What's holding you back from moving out for God? Really, it's time, it's time to go. It's time to move, to take that next step in faith for God. You know, it's no coincidence that a testimony, the first, the, the word testimony begins with the word test. And what's cool is when you pass the test, you have a testimony for God's glory. You get to talk about how great God is. Man, that's what he wants. So Lord, we humble ourselves before you this morning. And as we step out in faith, Lord, it's not because we are arrogant or we want a name for ourselves. We want to promote your kingdom. We want to promote that great name of Jesus. May we not live in fear, but help us to step out in faith for your great honor, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, submit that. the Spirit of God has been saying to you this morning and take that step. Watch God work in your life.